It took me years to realize that I actually like teaching. I like passing along my knowledge, the things that I've learned to the next generation, whether that's filmmaking, whether that's cooking, or whether that's just life stuff. There's something incredibly satisfying about engaging with a younger audience, about engaging with folks that bring things to the table and teach you something. I mean, it is such a rewarding thing to do. And it's no surprise, honestly, that I ended up doing a show like this because it's in my blood. It's been there since the beginning. Maybe it's because I'm an older brother. Maybe it's just because I came up through crews and through mentorships and through apprenticeships uh, prior to being in the film business. Uh, I just enjoy it. There's something, I, you know what? I was a terrible student. I was a god-awful student, and I hated being sat down and forced to study things in a textbook. A lot of the times, I couldn't figure out the context. I couldn't figure out why it was useful to me. I was terrible at algebra and geometry. I was god-awful at uh, chemistry and biology because it wasn't relevant to me. I didn't have a sense of understanding as a child with that stuff. And, you know... <sighs> Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know, man. I, I, I found that I learn more from apprenticeship stuff. I've always learned more that way. And I've always appreciated it that way. And what's interesting about the filmmaking world is that it requires a bit of both, right? You got to do some studying. You got to do some deep diving into the theory of film. You got to do some deep diving into the theory of art and sort of the origins of art and composition and character building. And there's room in there for creative writing. There's room in there for acting and performing and for studying how humans communicate with each other and body language. All that stuff is really powerful tools for uh, any filmmaker, young or old, new or veteran. Those things are always coming into play with me. And so, like I said, it makes sense why I ended up doing this podcast now, there are a lot of people out there who are quote-unquote teaching folks, who are quote-unquote running schools or running, you know, tutorial YouTube things. And when you actually dig a little bit deeper than whatever's being marketed to you, you realize that many of these people haven't done anything, right? And some folks, especially in the world of like trying to get the algorithm to register us and trying to make money off of likes and views a lot of folks out there are just regurgitating something else that they've heard from someone else right and so when you're a young filmmaker and we all have this right the imposter syndrome we're all concerned whether or not we deserve to be here whether or not our skills and our time are enough to justify us directing or enough to justify us in front of the camera or behind the camera uh, i think we're preyed upon a lot a lot by, I don't know, these snake oil salesmen that are out there doing that. And you've heard me talk about this before on the show, and I've said this multiple times. If you are going to sign up for classes or courses or pay money for anything, quickly just look up whoever's running it, deep dive, go check out like what they've done, the kind of things that they've done, the kind of movies that they've worked on. Do they create the kind of work that you appreciate, that you like? And oftentimes it's not as simple as like, well, he creates the images that I want to create. It's like, does he work on the movies that you want to work on? Because there is 
behind the scenes stuff that you want to learn from these people. How do I interact with producers? How do I interact with line producers? How do I put together a budget? How do I convince a crew filled with men that are twice my age to listen to me, a young guy? Like, what are the skills for that? As a woman, how do I break into this world? How do I break into a male-dominated scene and get respect from the people around me? You want to make sure that you're going to a good source for what you're being taught, right? And the unfortunate part about the internet is that mm, it's never really one-on-one, even though they sort of packaged it as a one-on-one thing. It never really is. And there are a handful of folks out there that are doing schools that sort of perked my interest, places that I've fallen into and learned stuff from. And our guest today is one of those guys. He is a working, has been a working cinematographer for years, for years. And he's going to tell you on the show how he get got into the business. And coming into the business for him was based upon mentorships, was based upon being helped in by older gentlemen that worked, people with a lot, a lot more experience that gave him opportunity to get into this business. And like it or not, no matter... No matter how we try to package this, this is a who you know business, right? It's a it's a real deal. It's a real deal. Who do you know? What is your reputation? Have you put your reputation on the line? Who's going to vouch for you? It's like the fucking mob. <laughs> like, will you vouch for him? Will you vouch for him? I love that movie. Made so good. Peter Falk. I don't know. I don't know if I vouch. Do you vouch for him? (laughs) But that is this business, man. And today's guest has been trained by cinematographers that we've had on the show, like Daniel Pearl, the guy who shot Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but more importantly, the guy that was single-handedly shooting some of the best music videos from the 80s and 90s, some of the biggest music videos from the 80s and 90s. And our guest today worked with him and and a handful of other cinematographers at that time. And because he hooked up with them, because he was in the right place at the right time and knew how to jump, he was given opportunities to do some amazing music videos like early Nirvana. I think his first music video was a Nirvana Nevermind video. How crazy is that? You'll hear me (laughs) respond to that when he brings it up on the show. Today, we're joined by Shane Hurlbut. Shane Hurlbut, ASC, man. So ASC, so he has been a shooting cinematographer since the late 80s, right? And this guy has done every genre that exists. I'm sure you've seen his work. He shot Drumline. He shot Semi-Pro. He shot Father and Daughters. He did Terminator Salvation. Whole lot of stuff with that movie. He did uh, The Babysitter recently on Netflix. He also shot the Need for Speed movie. So Shane has done a bit of everything, dude. And if you had to categorize his look, his look is his look is Hollywood, right? He he knows how to shoot stuff that looks expensive, that is expensive. He knows how to work with big crews, and he has had the time in this business. He has learned the trade through help from other cinematographers in this business and he's got those skills man and you're going to hear him talk a lot about it you're going to hear him talk about prep and what he does for prep and how he does prep these movies and he's going to talk a lot about the business and we get into as usual on the show we get into how bipolar this business is and shane talks about needing to have other forms of income 
supplemental income, other things that come through. And I think it comes from, and you'll hear the progression as we talk on this show, I think it comes from the fact that he wants to give back the same way he got in. And so he's big into teaching the next generation of filmmakers, and he talks about the pros and cons of that. And he runs uh, a place online, a school online called the Filmmakers Academy. Now, I've seen a lot of Shane's videos. He's done some pretty interesting walkthroughs on how he does lighting techniques and all sorts of stuff. It's pretty cool, man. And today's episode, let me put it this way. I didn't seek Shane out, right? He didn't seek me out. Uh, this show came to me from my buddy, Mike Henry. Now, I've talked about Mike on the show in the past. Mike is a guy that I met back when I started in Boston. So when I was a young, young filmmaker and I came back home from New York after going to school, I moved back in with my parents because I couldn't afford to do anything else. So I moved back home on the Cape and I started to make movies and short films and started to work for independent uh, industrial producers, you know, corporate guys, where I would do like uh, Harvey Window, like tutorial videos, and all that stuff. And there hit a point where I was on the Cape and I decided that I couldn't, I needed to be up in Boston. I needed to be in the big city. So I packed everything up. I moved back into Boston right? Got an apartment. And one of the first guys I met, because I wanted to embed myself into the film scene uh, in Boston, was Mike Henry. And he was a wonderful guy. He let me come on set. I came on set with the sound guys, believe it or not. Came on set. And I wasn't even on the crew. I just showed up and I watched. That's all I did is I hung out and I watched. I watched how everybody worked together. And through his movie, he was doing a short film. He's doing a vampire movie. Through his movie, I met my entire team. I met my entire crew. The core value, the core elements of my crew that then exploded and became what was 12KM. So Mike, not only is he a director, but he has been working as a key grip for years. And he is one of the most influential dudes for me as far as lighting is concerned. I remember the first time I worked with him, I hired him to do a music video. I think it was the Diecast video we did years ago. You might be able to find that on my website. Um, that's MikePetchy.com, by the way. But uh, yeah, he came on. And at the time, I was just sort of really sort of flubbing my way through being a cinematographer. I was learning as I went, right? I, I knew how to be a photographer, and I was sort of working my way through it. And when you first start, it's always like... What light should we use? How should what what is the units that we should use? How powerful are these lights? How powerful should they be? And Mike was the first one that was like, "Look, you can turn on lights. Anybody can turn on lights, man. But it's about how you shape those lights, right? And if you look at any light source that exists in the real world, it's not just a unit that's turned on people. Sometimes it is, but most of the time it's not. It's put through diffusion, it's bounced, right? That's what makes light look natural." And working with Mike for the for for many years after that, we created some of the coolest looking images that I had uh, on screen. And so, anytime that someone would try to hire me as a cinematographer, and they go, "We love your look, we love your stuff," you know, you would usually hear the next words out of my mouth were, "Okay, you got to hire this guy, you got to hire that guy, you got to hire this guy." And if we're lucky, we can get Mike Henry. Now, Mike has stayed in Boston, and Boston's got a pretty good film community right? The tax incentives really built up a crew there. And they've been shooting a lot of movies there, not just movies like Ted. And I know everybody talks about, uh, 
you know, what is the Ben Affleck and Matt Damon movie there? Goodwill Hunting, right? But they've shot all sorts of stuff in that city. And Mike has worked his way up to the top. So he is one of the best key grips in town. And so it was Mike that called me. I got a random phone call from him. And he said, hey, man, I just worked with this cinematographer. We just did this whole thing together. And I think he'd be good for your show. I was like, what? He goes, yeah, I think he'd be good for your show, man. His name is Shane. And I went, oh, I know this guy. So that's how we got the episode. So big shout out to Mike Henry. Um, and uh, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. But before we get into it, I just want to say thank you to everybody that has been following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy and following me uh, at the podcast Instagram, which is in love with the process pod. That's in love with the process P-O-D. Now, if you're coming here to the show right now because you want to see 12KM, here's the deal. The link for the movie is in my Instagram bio, and the password for it is 12KM3. So that's 12, capital K, capital M, 3. 12KM3 gets you to see my film. Now, you can still send me your three favorite horror movies, and anytime that you see me live, we can talk about it. I want to hear that, man. But here's the truth of it. After going viral in India, <laughs> it's impossible. It's impossible for me to answer enough DMs to go back more than four or five days prior. It's impossible. I can't do it. And the way Instagram works, it's a huge pain in the ass. So I've been attempting to get to as many of you as possible. There are folks that wrote to me in early July. I'm not going to get to your DMs. I just can't get back that far. I'm trying. So re-DM me if you want to re-DM me. I won't be offended if you're continuously DMing me. Um, or just keep it simple. Listen to the show. And if you have friends that want to see 12 Cam, send them here to the podcast. Because once again, I'll give it to you one more time. The link for the movie is in my Instagram bio. And the password for the movie is 12KM3. So it's the number one, the number two, capital K, capital M, and the number three. All right? Don't say I didn't give you anything for free. You know what I mean? Um, but thank you, everybody, for wanting to see it and for continuously making this movie go fucking viral. And this is a film we shot in 2016, and it is still massive massive and in a period of like barbenheimer and like everybody wanting to go back to the cinema i'm proud to be I'm not comparing myself to those two movies budgetarily <laughs> but i'm proud to be a part of it and i'm proud to be a part of the fact that people want to engage with filmmakers people want more from cinema and big shout out to everybody i'm contemplating making some new stickers and some new t-shirts with a QR code embedded in the design. I'm contemplating this. So that way, when you wear the t-shirt and your friends want to see the film, they could just see it. Are you into that? Is that cool? Let me know. You can always write to me directly at inlovewiththeprocess at gmail.com, or you can comment under any of my photos or posts on Instagram. That is the fastest way to get a response from me. Otherwise, your DMs get dropped into a sea of DMs. <laughs> um, but anyway, let's not go too much further because Shane and I got a lot to talk about. So we're going to get into it pretty deep. He loves to share. He's got an interesting story. We're both Boston. Uh, we come up through Boston. So we've got a lot of uh, things in common. Uh, so I'm excited. 
All right. I'm sure you are too. So get ready for another epic cinematography episode of In Love with the Process. Shane, thanks for being on the show, man. Nice to meet you. How are you? Ah, it's great meeting you too, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, man. I'm excited. I'm excited. Like, I've I've known of your work. I've seen your work. Uh, I've seen your stuff that you've done with the Filmmakers Academy, and I've seen all sorts of videos and stuff out there. And uh, when our buddy uh, Mike Henry was like, you got to get Shane on the show, I was like, yes, please. no mike and i had such a great experience on this last series we were working with and when he sent uh your link through and and uh what you had been doing and all that stuff i was like oh hell yes let's do this (laughs) well thanks man i mean like there are so many places on the internet right now to sort of you know I'm, i'm putting this in air quotes to go learn how to direct. And I think that there are a lot of people out there that are air quoting, teaching you to direct that don't do anything or don't shoot anything. And it just, just seems like this regurgitation of like uh, something that someone else posted there on uh, YouTube and they just say it over again and just put their own face on it. And one of the things that when I started this show, uh, I sort of had like this real deep thought about it where I said, look, I'm not going to go start talking about stuff that I haven't done. Uh, Because I think that's kind of important when you're teaching folks. And I I feel like that's a big part of our business is mentorship. And uh, really, it's like one of the last trades where you learn a lot by doing the job. Um, Yes. And uh, what I respect about what you do is that you've got the track record, right? So you've been a cinematographer for how many years now? Let's see, since uh, 1991. Yeah, okay, so you've been in it. (laughs) (laughs) You've been in it hard, man. And, you know, you've done everything, right? You've done everything from comedy to, like, huge blockbuster action stuff. Um, Yes. And uh, what I really appreciate about a lot of the the videos that I've seen from you is that it it runs the gamut of, like, you know, this is what you should be doing if you're, you know, organizing cases and labeling cases, too. Like, uh, here's how I light a sequence to all sorts of different stuff. So it's, yeah. I, f- I find it very useful, but is what I'm saying. Oh, well, thank you. Yes. Yes. That was my, that was my long-winded intro. <laughs> 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 um, so for the, for the folks listening that, uh, it, because it still blows my, well, I, it doesn't blow my mind. I mean, a lot of what we do in this business as technicians is supposed to be invisible. So I think a lot of the average Joe movie go goers out there really don't even recognize cinematographers and what they do. Um, yeah. how, how did you get started in this business? Like, where did you start? So I, um, 
you know, I, I came out of high school and uh, I thought I was going to be a DJ. <laughs> okay. So I, uh, I did DJ work when in high school, dances, you know, uh, proms, all that stuff. And uh, so I was like, all right, let me sign up for, uh, you know, something in radio. Yes. And, um, you know, my parents were kind of, you know, I'd say lower middle class and, and, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of money and I really didn't want to spend, uh, they were willing to pay for my education, which was absolutely wonderful. Uh, but I didn't want to spend their money unwisely. So I'm like, all right, let me go to a little community college. That's got a radio and television program. And then I'll see if I like it. And if I like it, I'll continue on. And if I don't, then I'll try something else. But I didn't spend, you know, at that time, $20,000 a year, uh, for a, uh, you know, for, for an education, which is now $72,000 a year. (laughs) Where'd you go? Where'd you grow up? Where, where, where were you? So I grew up in upstate New York, kind of Syracuse, Ithaca area. And I went to Herkimer County community college. They had a great radio and television program taught by some people that were actually still in the, the industry. So it was, it was awesome learning from them and they inspired the hell out of me. And my first year of radio, I loved it. My second year was television. I loved that even more. And, uh, I remember saying, okay, I'm, I want to, I want to do this, you know, film thing, mass communications, whatever it is. And, um, at the time I had been dating my high school sweetheart for, (laughs) I guess, three or four years now, and she was going to Boston. So I remember going into my guidance counselor at Herkimer and I said, just get me into the best film school in Boston. I'm chasing after my wife, uh, because my, my future wife. And they're like, uh, I don't know if this is the right way to decide where you're going for film school. And I go, oh, yes, it is. Because without her, I am nothing. <laughs> so I uh, blasted up to Emerson College. Um, uh, so you went to Emerson. Graduated yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. I got a scholarship from Herkimer because I graduated number one. Graduated number one in my class, so I got a full ride scholarship to Emerson. Nice. Which was my parents loved that. Um, and then when I got out, I, you know. It's so funny because I I see so many film students come out of film school and, uh, you know, I have a lot of uh, interns from Emerson and USC and Chapman and all the other film schools around uh, at Filmmakers Academy. And it's it's so funny because when they first come out, you're all fired up and you think, (laughs) you know, I went to film school and I got my reel and I'm going to be a DP or, you know, whatever. When I came out of film school, I didn't want to be a DP. I thought I was a producer because I could convince anybody to do anything. And I really was good at it. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to be a producer, you know? And, and so I walked, got my mom, bought me a three piece suit and I pounded the payment in Boston, knocking on every production company door saying, Hey, I'm Shane Hurlbut. And I just graduated from Emerson college and I want (laughs) to be in production, you know, and every door was just slammed in my face. (laughs) So then I went back to my internship place, which was the uh, film arts at the time in Boston. It's uh, that one has gone under, but um, it was a great uh, place to learn. And uh, they had camera, they had grip, 
They had electric. They had uh, big 10-ton and 5-ton trucks. Yep. And they had a uh, whole other audio-visual side that did like television on the other side of film arts. So I worked as uh, you know somebody that's just in the rental house uh, as an employee pulling orders and stacking trucks and you know, unloading them and loading them. And that's where I started. And I just started to fall in love with <laughs> gripping. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Uh, then yeah. I started to fall in love with, um, you know, the electric work and everything, everything that was about the kind of the more the technical side of lighting and, and, uh, and, and grip. Yeah. And I quickly realized that the only way that I was going to move up in Boston was if the guy above me died. <laughs> so <laughs> I was true. like, all right, it's you know what? True. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to move out to LA where it's a little more the wild, wild West and I can make it my own. Yeah. So uh, my wife, well, not my wife at the time, my fiance and I got in a Ford Ranger pickup truck with a U-Haul and a scooter in the back. And we drove across America, literally camping because we didn't have enough money to to uh, stay in hotels or motels, camped all the way across. And it was like this cloud of death and darkness was like, why are you leaving the East Coast? It literally <laughs> rained on us everywhere across America. It was like, what the hell? Uh, but we got to Los Angeles, got set up, started right back at a rental house, and then got this moment. And this is, you know, you need to... When these moments happen in your life, you gotta you gotta grab them by the balls. Yeah. And uh, this guy was a producer, and he came in, and he was uh, meeting with one of the rental guys. And I was working at Keylight. Keylight doesn't exist anymore. Hollywood uh -huh. Rental bought out Keylight, and then MBS bought out Hollywood Rental. So <laughs> um, that's where we are with that. So I'm. Um, He's in the second story talking to the rental manager, trying to make a deal and everything. And he looks out the window and he's like, who's that guy that keeps running around? And he goes, oh, <laughs> that's this guy from Boston. Jesus, <laughs> you should see this guy. All he does is run. It's like he's got the energy of a dynamo, right? <laughs> so this guy comes down to me and he goes, hey, I would really love for you to drive our grip truck. Uh, for this movie, yeah, but they're not making a good deal. So will you drive the truck and I'm going to go to a competitor, but it <laughs> means you have to leave. And I was like, Jesus, I just signed there. I was only there a month, right? So I'm like, oh my God, I've been only there a month and now I'm abandoning this. Well, that was that moment yeah. where I put all, I did all the cards in, right? I yeah. just pushed them all in, said, okay. And I went to this uh, other competitive company, which was Lee America at the time, yep. which then became Pascal, which was then bought up by MBS. And now the guy who runs MBS is the guy who 
hired me to drive that truck on that movie. <laughs> okay. Wild. So Evan Green, we've been friends since 1988. Mm-hmm. And um, he is just a, a an incredible individual. He's helped me out so much throughout my career. So I drove Grip Truck on this movie called Phantasm Two. Yeah, no this shit. Summer, the <laughs> ball is back. No shit. <laughs> oh, that's hysterical, man. Those movies scared the hell out of me when I was a kid, man. Oh, me too. That damn ball and the oh, forks came out oh. and the drill would drill their brains out. Oh, my God. Yeah, I had nightmares about that thing forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical, man. All right. So then you you you, uh, you you gambled. You threw all down for Phantasm 2 driving a truck for this guy that you didn't driving even know. Driving a truck. And, you know, I was we were on our last couple weeks of the movie. And uh, I get, you know, over the walkie-talkie. Hey, uh, Shane, bring in an 18 by 24 flag stat, right? So uh-huh. I'm like in the grip truck and I grab it and I run down and I'm coming down these stairs into our crematorium set. <laughs> and my friend, uh, Brian Coyne, who was the best boy electric, he stops me and he goes, hey, Shane, would you be scared? And I go, Brian, what the fuck are you talking about? I, I'm, you know, I got to run this thing down to Terry. And, uh, you know, I, he goes, no, look at the light in the theater. Would you be scared? Oh, okay. every nook and cranny is lit. Yeah. There's no shadow. Right. And right. it was like, pang. At that point, everything I looked at was light. So that was the moment for you. That was the light moment. That was the absolute aha moment. And I literally went from a grip truck driver in 1988 to shooting my first music video in 1991. And that was Come As You Are Nirvana. No kidding. That was your first music video? Yep. Oh, my God. Music videos. It was a different time then, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that started everything. And, uh, you know, it was just like uh, I I hooked up with a couple or with three amazing mentors, Daniel Pearl, Joseph Yako, and Kevin Kerslake. And they all were doing all three different types of music videos. Joseph Yako, beauty. Mm -hmm. Kevin Kerslake, Everything experimental, all the grunge era. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Daniel Pearl, all the rock and roll. I love Daniel. He's Van been on the Halen, show. Guns and Roses, all I, those. I love Daniel. So I he's just, been on the show, man. Him and I, him and I go along really well. He's an interesting character. Daniel, he's been on the show, man. Oh yeah, yeah. He's an yeah. interesting cat, man. <laughs> oh yeah. So so I had these three mentors that basically taught me all the different types of lighting and lensing and everything. And then you know Kevin Kerslake finally gave me the nod and said, "Hey, you want to do Come as You Are?" And I did, and that kind of started to launch my music video career. But from 1988 to 1991 i had done in 88 and 89 i had done 100 music videos a year that's crazy. so if you start to calculate that you can see that i took basically the experience of a cinematographer to get his career started 
maybe that starts like four or five years or whatever, seven years, whatever that is to kind of get it all dialed in. It literally took me two years because I did seven years of work in two years. How did you get so, so it's how, like, how did you get so many music videos? It was just the connects that you had at that point, right? You yes. Yeah, yeah. They, they were like the three most prolific music video shooters other than Daniel or other than David Fincher and like a couple others. Yeah. Those guys were were it. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy, man. Talk about right yeah. place, right time, brother. Right yeah. place, right time for that. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I mean, collectively, all of you guys made the videos that have really influenced the entire industry. I mean, I mean, I got into music video directing much later. I got into music video directing probably in like 2003 or something. And that, yeah. was, that was right around the time where like, like I was communicating with Mark Romanek and he's like, dude, why are you getting into this business? <laughs> it's like, this is like your budgets are what our take home was. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, no, I know. Yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, everybody was so influenced by the work that you guys had done prior. So I said to Daniel too, I'm like, dude, all those fucking Guns N' Roses videos, Jesus Christ, those yeah. influenced everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Crazy stuff, man. Crazy. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, listening to your story about, you know, I'm a Boston kid. So I don't know if Mike told yeah. me. Yeah. So I'm a Boston kid. And I, I was there for years and ran a production company and worked for some of the biggest production companies in town and did that for quite some time. What was your production company again? So my company was called McFarlane and Pesci back in the day. And then we, okay. were, we were repped as well by Red Tree. I don't know, you know, Red Tree Productions and. Those guys. Yeah, I can't, there was a company there that I remember working for that started with a P. Oh, not not Powderhouse. It was uh, it was another company. Palomar Pictures, or yeah. I can't remember. They all, it was shifting. Was, so yeah. I mean, it's a hard city to it's a hard city no. to have a career in because it's mostly no. It is. It's, it's mostly really colleges. hard, and it's, it's, you know, no it's like I I was a little worried when I. Uh, you know, when I came there to do this last series, you know, what my crew base would be, you know, because yeah. uh, it is a very small market up there. But I had just a kick-ass crew. I was so impressed. <laughs> I loved it. Well, the, I'm sure I know most of the dudes. Like, and I, I'm sure half those guys slept in my house at one point. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, yeah, man, they're, they're diehards, dude. And like, I have my two films that I have that have sort of catapulted my career. And even all my music video work, whenever I would get hired by folks and they would call me as a cinematographer and go, hey, will you come and do this? I go, well, you got to hire this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, because they're the fuckers that did it. Like, these are the dudes that that help shape light. These are the guys that, that make this stuff work, man. Like, they're amazing yep. for it. And I, I feel like, uh, you know, we take a lot of credit for the work that the dudes underneath us do all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So good guys in that city, dude. Really great guys in that yeah, city. Yeah, no, I like I said, I was uh I was really blown away with the crew and and uh their super positive attitude and uh you know, I I come in with a with a uh I call it the wave of positivity. I call it positronics. <laughs> Uh, because, uh, <laughs> you know, like you gotta be, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You gotta be grateful in this industry and what, what we do because we get paid to play, yeah. uh, and, and, and be like a five-year-old all day. And there's not too many professions that allow that kind of stuff. So, um, I'm just grateful to wake up every day and go in and be able to lens and light and, you know, create yeah. an emotion that people are like, oh my God, you know, that 
did you feel that? And, you know, it's like, yeah, I felt it because not only was the performance and the script and the direction was there, so was the production design and the lighting and the hair and the makeup, everything kind of fell into place. So, yeah, I mean, and your style is interesting. Like you have very much like, it's so wild. Your style is like oftentimes like hyper real and very, or at least, a lot of the big hits that you've done often seem hyper real and, and very big budget, like very big Hollywood is what I think when I see your stuff, dude. Like, yeah. It's like, I, I've always kind of, you know, I, I've never been that kind of desaturate the hell out of everything. I, and yeah. make it all look like everyone's dead. I'm just <laughs> not that type of person because that's not what we see through our eyes. So, you know, I've always, I mean, there's obviously, you know, time and place for all of that. But uh, when there isn't, uh, I, I tend to drift toward the stories of, uh, you know, like greatest game ever played is a perfect example of where I am in my sweet spot. I love sports. I played almost every one of them uh, in high school and semi-pro. I was, you know, um, a huge you know, kind of athlete in, in high school and college. Yeah. I just loved the, the coach atmosphere and the team atmosphere and everything that that was all about, uh, along with a dramatic come from behind the dude never had a shot, but wins kind <laughs> of story. You know, those, you can't, you can't hate those ever. <laughs> <laughs> so cool, man. So cool. So when, when you're, uh, what's your process when you're, cause, cause it's a, it's an interesting relationship between cinematographers and directors. And it's, yeah. it's, it's almost like this sort of dating game that happens with it. Um, like, are you, are you ever, are you still on the hunt for directors that you want to work with? Or are you just sort of processing what comes to you as far as like when the jobs come through? Like what's, what's your, what's your work like now? Yeah. I mean, it's, I think. I think I'm always looking out for different directors to work with, but uh, it's been kind of coming in steadily, uh, all different types of, of, of films. Um, I had never shot a rom-com in 2019. I was like, all right, let me try this. And I enjoyed it <laughs> because every day you went on set and you laughed your ass off for 10 or 12 hours and then you went home. I was like, wow, this is kind of a really good gig. I'm like, I like this. But I'm going to make my rom-coms not be like the stereotypical rom-coms. I'm going to bring all my drama, all my specific lighting, everything that I do on my, you know, action pictures and dramas, and I'm going to fold it into that. And that's kind of, you know, what I did to kind of bring my version of uh, the rom-com together. And then there's stuff with, um, you know, what I just recently, you know, I did... um, Two movies with uh, Gabriel Muccino, mm-hmm. uh, which I absolutely loved, Fathers and Daughters. And then I did an Italian film called The Casa Tutta Bene. He brought me to uh, to Italy, and that was just an incredible experience working with all the Italian you know, gaffers and grips and yeah. first ACs and, and uh, the whole language barrier and trying to work in that environment was, was uh, you know, it was a wonderful experience. Uh but yeah, I, I I really love dramas and I really love finding that sweet spot where 
you are able to manipulate the light and the camera in a way that takes that performance to a whole other level. And yeah, yeah, that's yeah. kind of what I try to do on every project I, I work on. You know, it's like I get hired to work with a lot of first-time directors. And yeah. um, that's because my, my, uh, my relationship with Wonderland Sound and Vision, you know, Mick G and I go way back, uh, 1991, shooting Cypress Hill music videos and Sugar Ray and <laughs> yeah, all yeah. those uh, times with him. So we've always had a great relationship and his company, Wonderland, hires me a ton to do a lot of their uh, films that they were produced for Netflix and Amazon. So that's been very enjoyable because it gives me... Um, you know, I'm almost like, uh, it's, it, uh, it's kind of a great listening to all their ideas and then trying to be able to formulate, formulate that into a master plan mm -hmm. that delivers everything that they could ever imagine. Right. Mm -hmm. And because a lot of first time directors, they have, you know, outlandish ideas and really cool concepts and all this stuff. And most of the time you can't ever fit those into the film. Yeah. You know, we don't have the time, we don't have the money, we don't have this, that, and the other, but I tend to prep like a complete animal, mm -hmm. uh, in regards to really getting down in there and, and getting in the nitty gritty and, and do blocking schematics and shot lists and lighting schematics. So everyone really knows what's going on and they can feel super confident about their day and everything. So yeah. that has been working very well to be able to give the first time directors all their, you know, dreams that they had hoped would happen on their movie. And that has been kind of a, a really fun experience. Yeah. Uh, and then I jump from that to Suzanne Beer on, uh, you know, The Perfect Couple. And that's a complete different scenario. You know, very established uh, female director, yeah. really knows what she wants, knows. Uh, and and uh, so that's a whole other kind of working dynamic uh, on that um, show. And yeah. that's how it is with kind of every director as a cinematographer. I think my job, first and foremost, is to morph into like a piece of clay, whatever the director is asking me to do mm -hmm. in regards to, you know, the vision, the way it's and then I have to morph also with production to be able to manage the budget and, you know, work with what I have and try to, you know, work on compromises and stuff. And then I'm also there for my crew, making sure that they're taken care of, making right. sure that they're, you know, everything is, so I, I call it the 33.3, you know, it's like you're doing 33.3 <laughs> of molding and shaping and inspiring and, and uh, having the compassion, the shoulder to cry on, you know, the <laughs> psychologist that you have to be sometimes yep. on set yep. uh, as a leader. And, you know, these are the kind of things that I feel that is my job as a creative to be able to not to go in with hardened ideas. And this is the way or the highway I'm there to morph and, you know, guide and, and also throw out uh, wonderful ideas and, and thoughts and yeah. stuff 
not just in the cinematography language, but also in the script and, and what I think works, or maybe that just doesn't work or isn't this so on the nose. Uh, so it's like, you also want, I feel a director also needs somebody to bounce ideas yeah. off of. And, uh, you know, and I, I like to be that springboard of saying, you know, I just don't, even during the performance, you know, I like to sit right next to the director and we're looking at the performance and, you know, we'll look at each other and I'm like, I didn't believe him. And she's like, yeah, yeah. all right, going again. <laughs> <laughs> all right. It's time to take a break and talk about uh, the gear. I like to use the sponsors. I like to use on the show. I've, I've gone through the painstaking process of hounding and hunting down the companies that I actually use and that I respect um, because when I knew that the show would need sponsorships in order to stay alive and stay out, uh, I wanted to make sure that I was, you know, promoting the stuff I believe in. It's important to me, especially on a show like this, you know, um, and all you need to do, I don't charge for the show, by the way, all you need to do as a listener, every episode that you listen to, it's very easy, whatever uh, podcast delivery system you use, if you're using Apple Podcasts or even Spotify, in the description of the episodes are my sponsor links and each of those links are trackable and they're traceable and what they do is they let the sponsors know that you're listening that's what they do so for homework every episode you listen to just click on the links below that episode lets people know which ones you like lets people know what's up right and keeps them around keeps the show afloat like I said, I don't charge for these episodes. It's the easiest thing to do. Please do it when you listen to the show. And if you can't get those links to work, just go to inlovewiththeprocess.com on today's episode page or any of the episode page. Click the links there as well. It is a simple thing to do. It keeps us up and running. And it's really, really important. I know it always drives me crazy when I watch a YouTube video and they go click to subscribe and all that. I'm not asking for that. I'm just telling you, we're going to the meat and potatoes of this. Our sponsors support the show. And like I said, I love these companies. I love them. For instance, we're doing a cinematography episode. Let's talk about Fujifilm. There isn't a company, a camera company that I've run into that does as much for filmmakers, young filmmakers and young cinematographers as Fujifilm. And that's not saying other companies don't make great gear. Fujifilm makes great gear too. But Fujifilm actually goes out and finances short films. Fujifilm goes out and supports the filmmakers. And all the people that work at Fujifilm, their entire promotions team, uh, Victor and all those guys, they're fantastic. I love them. And when we were on the hunt for a new camera, a kit, a camera kit to have here at the house, Fujifilm was my first stop because of what they do with low light stuff, what they do with medium format still cameras, and what they're now doing with amazing video cameras. It was a no brainer for me. No brainer. And I say this to all you young cinematographers that are listening, all you young directors out there. It's important for you because I get this question all the time. What, what camera did you shoot 12 cam on? What camera did you shoot the Beat Miller videos on? And my answer is this. Every project will dictate what kind of camera you need to use. And oftentimes that means that it needs a specific format that is being delivered on, or you need to shoot it with specific lenses, or you're only going to have a crew the size of four people. And you can't really use one of the larger rigs that requires a bunch of ACs and assistants to do stuff. Sometimes you just need something that is portable. Sometimes you need something that is robust 
and that you have sitting next to you that's in your place. I always say this, you should have a camera that you can pull out of your closet at any point of the day, go shoot with your friends, and you never know, you might make a high quality video that you get known for. In a, in a practice session that you guys do, you might find a style that ends up being the next feature you make or the first feature you make, or that little comedy video that you guys made together goes viral. Fujifilm makes amazing cameras for still photographers and for video folks, and I absolutely love my X-H2S. I love it. We use it all the time. It shoots ProRes, and combined with one of our other sponsors, Photodiox, that's F-O-T-O-D-I-O-X, they create lens adapters. So on my Fujifilm, I can put all my old school Nikon mount lenses that I've had since 1999. I'm talking about my old macro stuff. So when you guys watch 12 cam, you see all that really detailed macro work is because I'm using like these old Nikon macro lenses. And when you swap camera bodies, so you swap manufacturers is a scary thing because you've already made a commitment to all these other lenses, to this other company, and you have a closet full of them. And you're like, God, I gotta, all right, so I, I bought a Fujifilm. Does that mean I have to buy all their lenses? Well, they have some great, they have some great lenses out there, man. They're 50, fil they're 50 millimeter, like beautiful portrait. Uh, I think it's like a 1.8 aperture lens. It's gorgeous. And a lot of the Fujifilm lenses work perfectly with their autofocusing. And the autofocus system stuff, it's Skynet shit, man. It's crazy. It's not only is it able to track eyes and face and hair, it can actually figure out the difference between hair and eyes, which is nuts. But, but you can also set it to like track objects on the counter. So when you're doing handheld moves and stuff, it's, it's like auto ACing for you. It's crazy shit, man. Go check out Fujifilm's X-H2S. And I know a lot of us, we're all out of work right now. And so it's really tough to be able to flip full price bill. If you'll notice in the description of the episode, I put a refurb, refurbished link that they gave me, which is trackable, by the way. And there they put up all their rigs that have been refurbished, fixed at Fujifilm, brought back to the level of high quality and sold at discounted rates. And every once in a while, make sure you're following me at Mike Petchy on Instagram. I'm going to post stuff that I think is really cool for the refurbished thing that I, you may have to battle me to get it. You know what I'm saying? And there's some great prices on stuff right now that, excuse me, right now they have a GFX 100S body up there. Really good price. Bunch of really cool XT3 bodies are up there. They have a refurbished 100 to 400 millimeter zoom lens. That's pretty rad. Um, and then they have like a, a bunch of their little, little pocket cams up there too. The X-Pro3, which is a great camera if you want to like, if you want to change the way you're thinking about photography and you don't want to use the same device to take photos as you do to have to make a doctor's appointment on the phone. You don't like, I don't like shooting art with an iPhone. It just doesn't make sense to me right? Not because it's a, it doesn't have decent lens in it, not to, not because it doesn't have a really good uh, pixel ratio, right? It's got all those things. It's just that when I'm framing things up and I get a text, I get a nagging text from a client or from my mom, that just ruins my mood. You know what doesn't? You know what I don't get texts on? My Fujifilm camera. <laughs> Dude, as you get in this business longer, as you get older, you realize the power of setting yourself in the right mood. You realize the power of erasing the stresses of your regular life and getting lost in the moment when you're shooting, when you're capturing things. 
do yourself a favor and separate yourself, right? Get yourself a, a really good rig. And of course, I'm going to try to sell you on a Fujifilm rig because that's what we're doing right now. And they're fantastic. Their color profiles are fantastic. They're great rigs. Fujifilm, check the links in the description of the episode. And also Photo Deox, check the links in the description of the episode. And if you get a Photo Deox adapter, or if you're right in the middle of the strike like everybody else and there's no work out there, instead of sitting around and like getting up depressed about it, right? Maybe you have to go drive Uber to be able to make it work. I get it, man. I totally get it. But you should be, in the meantime, shooting personal projects. Get together with all those out-of-work actors and do something that is non-union and make short films, make sketch, uh, sketches, make little comedy bits, create content, use this time wisely. And if you're going to do that as a cinematographer, it's a great time to go to rental houses. They're in trouble right now, man. They're 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 in a hot spot right now because it's it's hard for everybody to stay afloat without these big productions running. And they're kind of desperate. They have all their gear sitting on their shelves. I, this is the perfect time to approach them and say, hey, can I borrow that stuff to shoot something? It'd be really great because for them, it's also good, right? If you go shoot a personal project with their gear and then you post all about it and you advertise it, you actually showcase their stuff, you're giving them the advertising stuff that they need for social media that keeps them relevant. Look at me giving you some tips on how to get some good stuff from sponsors and maybe get your own sponsors. Next thing you know, you'll be an influencer. But in the meantime, go check out your local rental house. See what they have in stock. Talk to them. They do training seminars. And if you're here in Los Angeles, Boca Rentals is my favorite spot. They have all the lenses that I love. Uh, they support young cinematographers and filmmakers. I can't say enough great things about them. Check them out. Boca Rentals on line or go check out Boca Rentals on Instagram. Two great resources. If you are a young cinematographer, young filmmaker in Los Angeles, or they're also in Las Vegas, from what I understand. So I love those guys over at Boca Rentals. Finally, the legends on our show, the guys that have been with me since before the show, Puget Systems. If you're in the marketplace for a new computer, let's say you're going to get real deep in some of this AI stuff. Maybe you're going to go real deep in virtual production. Uh, maybe you're just working on editing your personal stuff, the stuff that you shot with your Fujifilm camera, and that laptop isn't powerful enough. You need a sit-down system at home. Maybe you're going to start color grading and using Resolve, right? You need a bigger computer. I know the big boys. I know those big MacBook Pros, they seem so appealing, right? They have like three choices and it seems to cost the same amount that a fucking used car would cost to be able to get one of those computers. Why do it? Build yourself a PC. The programs work perfectly on both operating systems. Why not? There's a way to set your PC up so that it'll communicate and write to Mac drives. Doesn't go the other way from Mac, by the way. But you can communicate and write to Mac Drive. So let's say that you are a post-production house and you're working with other vendors, like maybe you're working with uh, VFX folks or sound dudes, right? And you're like, well, if I'm if I'm working on a PC and they're all on Mac, how do we communicate? There's ways to make it work. I'll tell you, man, I've been doing it for years. Go check out PugetSystems.com. They will give you all the tips and tricks that you need to make it work. They're a family-run company, Upper West Coast, uh, and uh, they're real people. The best customer support in the business. You get on the phone with someone that knows your name, right? And when you buy a computer from them, 
They gave you a booklet. You know each and every person that has put their fingers and hands in your machine. They have little pictures of everybody in the booklet. It's crazy, man. PugetSystems.com, the place to go to build a new computer. PugetSystems.com. All right. Finally, like I said before, if uh, you're new to this show and you just want to find all the episodes on cinematography, because this is a bunch of them, go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There I've curated the show based upon subject material. It's all there for you. It's a great place to do what? Go click on the sponsor links. <laughs> you see what I'm saying here? All right, let's get back into it. Shane. Interesting. It's an interesting topic, right? Because <clears throat> the, like, there's a lot of folks that get into directing, and, and they come from all sorts of different places. And yeah. you know, you're talking to a guy that comes from a visual place, obviously. So, like, years of cinematography, and then being a director that's a visual director. So, when I finally connected with the cinematographer that I'm using consistently, it was a uh, sort of a joy for the two of us because we both speak the language and, and, and earlier on in the, in the production, we're always, you know, we'll battle it out before we get to set. Then we get to set and we both walk in different directions and he, he crushes it and I know what he needs and it works out really well. But there are a lot of people that get into directing from like stage or from writing or, you know, I'm the nephew of the producer. <laughs> it's, yeah. a, you've got these folks that are coming in that really, don't understand the visual language of cinema. And I think that uh, a lot of people don't realize the heavy lifting that a lot of cinematographers do in those scenarios where not only are you trying to maintain the creative vision of, of this director or oftentimes acting as a, as a, as a professor or a teacher for this director on how the, everything works. But then you're yeah. also, you've got the, you know, the production manager and you've got the producers like breathing down your neck on like, how much gear can you have that day? And like, do you really need a fucking techno crane for three weeks? And like, there's there's all these other elements that you're trying to balance at the same time while acting as sort of a block blocking guard for the for the director itself from that stuff, right? Isn't that yeah. the deal? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that most of the time, you know, it's like I when I first started out, you know, I really didn't know how to prep uh the way I prep now, you know, just like anything, you get better and better at it and you're constantly learning and you're constantly seeing what, you know, I've had so many failures in regards to my prep process and everything. And kind of during the pandemic, I flipped the whole prep process on itself and Ooh. tried a whole different way to go about it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. And, hold on, hold on. Interesting, interesting. Because prep is what a lot of people don't talk about. And prep is what our job is. My job is the director yeah. and your job is the cinematographer. Like, why'd you flip your shit on, on its head? Like, what happened? Well, I, I just found out. I Here's the thing. 
You know, it's like when you have a crew and, you know, they're all there and you want to inspire and, and, you know, build them up to, to take that hill on the 14th hour <laughs> when the chips are down and they've, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not been fed and, you know, all, everything's turning against you, right? At the perfect storm. And you want to be able to, uh, have them, you know, really believe in you. I found that, and I give this analogy a lot and it's pretty, simple to understand. If I go and prep a movie so I can tell you on a map from Los Angeles to New York, and I have a detailed out where you go right over the Rockies, the most direct route possible, and you get to LA. Yeah. Okay. That's how I flip the prep process. Before I would do 20 lighting schematics on a 150 scene show. I would do some blocking schematics, maybe 10, 15 for like the really complicated stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, that's like giving a roadmap to your crew going LA to the Rockies. And then all of a sudden it's Lewis and Clark with fucking machetes. <laughs> right. <laughs> because there's no map. There's no path. There's no two track. There's nothing. I haven't told them what we're doing. I haven't told them where we're going. Yes, we've had technical scouts and yes, we've done all this. But what I do is a daily, literally, I go so deep into exactly what each department needs to deliver on a daily basis, as well as they have a blocking schematic for every scene, a lighting schematic for every scene, a shot list for every scene. So when they come in in the day, they've had, they've had this when we started tech scouting. So let's say I get eight weeks of prep. They had this at six weeks. I'm right. done with it by then. Right. I've blasted it out to everyone so they know exactly what they're doing. So when we go into a location and they're saying, I need 15 grips and we're flying 112 by and an 18K into the bounce, I know they're full of shit, <laughs> right? So it's like, <laughs> I, you, you got to kind of, you know, base all that where, you know, then they'll say, well, you know, most DPs, you know, they put this down, but then they empty the truck. And I said, well, okay, give me the first week. You can hire exactly the crew you want where you think you're going to cover your ass. And then if I don't stick to the plan, then we can have a, a you know, a negotiation. Uh, well, sure smart, enough, smart. after the first week, they're like, damn, this guy actually does exactly what he's put out there. The actors are moving exactly where he's told them they were going to move. And then, my God, we're getting out of here in 10 hours and I'm actually able to enjoy a movie or have dinner with my family. Yeah. What the hell's going on here? Well, what's right. What's what's interesting. Hold on. Let me jump in. What's interesting here is that I talked about this on a few other episodes. You're, you're dealing and we deal with this a lot in our business. You're dealing with prior trauma that this crew has. Yeah. And, And it's, it's fascinating when you go into that as a leader, because not everybody in this business is respectful of the folks that work for them. And, no. and especially with a grip in the, <laughs> I mean, I've had friends that are in those departments for years and I've heard the horror stories. I've heard oh, the yeah. stories of like, you know, uh, a director and a, in a, you know, a cinematographer that's like, let's just swap sides. And there's a whole fucking wall. <laughs> like 20 case. <laughs> You know, that these guys spend a whole day. It's like, hey, get that done in like four hours. And they, they're just out there breaking their backs, man. And 
so like uh, you get you get it man and it's 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 smart i think that way that you're processing that saying give me a week and going through that it makes sense because that's a big part of what our our job is, is sort of you know coming in after someone snow plows through a fucking team and just decimates their love of the business by being an asshole and then we have to come in afterwards and go like guys 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 let's let's reset let's reset can we reset you and i know yeah. i know you want to see your kids tonight and i i think the big thing that we all forget is that you know there isn't a body on the table with their head cut open and we're trying to save them no, the brains that's exactly right and it's what we're dealing with in the industry right now in general which is the sort of lack of respect that uh, is out there for the folks that are writing and that are producing and that are creating these things on an independent level and on a level for uh, production companies at an independent level and being an independent dude that goes in and gets completely taken advantage of by the big systems and the big stuff that's happening right now. Um, yeah. And because at the end of the day, I, I feel like, and I don't know if you, you can chime in or you can not say anything on this, but I feel like in a business that is supposed to be 50-50, it's supposed to be creative in business. That's what's, that's the only way it, it works. It's supposed to be creative yeah. in business. It has been more fucking 85-15. It has been business, 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 business. And then here's some scraps for the people that that uh, are creating the creative stuff right now. I don't know if you yeah. if you agree or disagree. No, I mean I I I see it just in what I get paid. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, and I see it in what my crew gets paid, and and uh, you know how much that they're being asked to, you know, uh, everything is being shorted. Yeah, um, you know the prep. We used to have like my if my if I had a five camera package, my team had two weeks to prep that. Yeah. Now they have three or four days. It's insane. Right? That's insane. And it's and it's the same gear. It's 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 actually more gear than it was back with film cameras. And it's more tech and it's more cables and it's more checking variables to make sure everything is going to work functionality wise, uh, you know, than it was 10, 15 years ago. So it's like, why is all this? But that's where budgets are going. Everything's getting tighter, um, much, you know, you're, you got to pull off the impossible. I'm constantly being asked to come in and pull off the impossible. Yeah. And it gets, it gets to be a grind when it's like that. And those are the kind of things where I like to then step out and step back and put on my little educator hat on and inspire filmmakers all over the world. <laughs> I don't blame you, man. I mean, because it does feel like a grind, especially if that's how you're starting your gig, right? And you're like, hey, guys, uh, I know you usually have two weeks for this. You got three days. And, and those poor ACs <laughs> are in the rental house. And you know, no matter how great the rental house is, everything's not coming out that you asked for. And there are no, all these no, bits and, and it's pieces. and it's trickling in. So you might get lenses the day you're loading the truck. Sometimes, yeah, you know, man, yeah, yeah. And and you're like, does this work? I don't know. We're trying something experimental. Throw them on the truck, and we'll see on set. And then <laughs> then you're on set, and the ad's breathing down your neck. It's like, what's going on? Well, we didn't get a fucking chance to test these. So give us. Oh no, I know. It's like I I've done like three jobs in a row where my crew says, okay, we're gonna have to prep the first week of shooting. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, because meanwhile, you've done all the prep on like your blocking maps and all that stuff. And I'm sure you've you've planned out how much time all these things take. And then yeah. they're throwing at you like, oh, by the way, also, we got to <laughs> we got to try to assemble these rigs while doing that on day one. And you're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. It's like I got all these configurations that I have all built for the first day or first week of shooting. I always do that uh, to kind of get the whole camera team up to speed so they understand because I like to shoot with a lot of cameras not so much all at the same time but have all the cameras ready so they're like guns on a rack right oh, yeah, nice, nice nice and uh you know it's like i'm showing them all the configurations for every day and they're like yeah well we haven't built the uh, man cam one we haven't built this uh the backpack <laughs> one we haven't and i'm like guys the backpack one's up you know day one two hours after call yeah. he's like all right well We'll get to that, you know, and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, because then there's the stress, right? And then that yeah. stress is boiling in you as a leader. And then that stress, you know, the, the most difficult thing is, is like, you know, crew is like kids. They know when you're stressed, whether or not you're saying anything, they feel it. You know, it comes yeah. out of your skin. And so, yeah, it's such a, hey, hey, hey. And then how do you, how do you describe that to a producer? You know what I mean? How do you say to someone that's like, well, look, well, you know. That's the budget we got. That's the agreement. Well, why'd you make the fucking agreement to begin with? Eh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and they have a difficult job. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's like the producers, you know, what they're being asked also to produce is unrealistic as well. Yep. So they are then putting those unrealistic demands on us and figuring out how much we're going to swallow. And then they go back when we call uncle and then say, hey, we tried our best, but, you know, this is all we can do. And truly, I don't want to push them any further than where we are, you know, yeah, and yeah, and that, that compromise. And that's what making movies is all about. If you don't realize that it's a compromise, you know, it's like Bill Paxton said this to me when we were making Greatest Game. He goes, Shane, the film's never finished. It's just abandoned. <laughs> yeah. And I go, oh, my God, you're so right. <laughs> <laughs> It's true, man. All the way through, even, right? even as a director, all the way through into the edit, you know, when you're in the edit, yes. you're doing it and you're just like, I got to call it. I got to call it. I got to call it. This is it. This is it. This is it. Yeah. You know? And then later on, you're, that thing is on the, on the internet somewhere and some uh, keyboard warriors like, you know, the shot that you did that had the, uh, <laughs> the thing here, <laughs> you know, it could have been, I saw this in the background. You go, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I had to call it, brother. I had to call it. It never yeah. would come out. It would never come exactly. out. Yeah, man. Well, I mean, you were mentioning that you you uh, like to walk away from all this insanity every once in a while and, and start teaching people. And, and what do you get from teaching people? Why do you like it? Well, I you know, it's like in 2010, I, I just want to say from any creative out in this industry, you need multiple streams of revenue. Yeah. You can't be all on just, you know, your day job. Yep. Um, yep. And, you know, I really realized that in 2010, when my wife turned to me and said, you know what, I'm going to brand you. <laughs> and I'm like, 
brand me. I'm a goddamn cinematographer, not a brand, you know? <laughs> and she's like, no, we're going to brand you at the the work that you're doing with this DSLR stuff is revolutionary. No, this is, you're changing the way we make movies. You're democratizing, uh, you know, filmmaking like no one has ever done. And I was like, okay. Uh, all right. So how do, what do you want me to do? And she's like, we're going to start this blog and we're going to start sharing knowledge. And, you know, with the sharing knowledge, it was like a fire hose, Mike. I, was, I could not, <laughs> take all the questions as well as how much that I learned from all of them all over around the world in return. Yeah. Yeah. So as much as I gave, I got more back. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is really rewarding. You know, it's like uh, I'm having dialogue with a guy in Sweden who's cracked the code on DSLR ISO tracking. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I never realized that if I just go, you know, if I, shoot at 160 instead of 100, there's going to be less grain. And I go to 320, there's less grain than there is it. Why is that? It doesn't matter. It just, I got to shoot those, you know? <laughs> so it's like you, you I learned so much as well, as much as I was sharing knowledge. And I was really kind of pushing a platform that was not ready for prime time. Yeah, and the I was stuff. doing yeah, it. Yeah because I was based on the movie that I was working on at that time. Uh, Act of Valor had all the restrictions put on me, right? They said, we can have access to all this billions and billions of dollars of, uh, you know, infrastructure to be able to stage all your things, you know, all your, um, your movie on, Mm -hmm. but you got to keep it to 10 to 12 people. Oh, wow. Well, I'm like, well, holy shit, how do you make a action picture with 10 or 12 people? Yeah, it's intense, like, man. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this thing called a Canon 5D. It just came out. It's like this DSLR, <laughs> and it's got a 30 frames per second uh, video function. I've done some research on this. I think I can make this look like a movie camera. <laughs> and the directors are like, really? And I go, yeah. So I did some tests, showed them film comparison, the DSLR, and they're like, how are you getting that imagery? And I'm like, well, I took a Panavision mount and had Panavision fabricate it, mounted on a Canon 5D, and that's a $27,000 piece of primo Panavision glass. <laughs> it's like, Jesus, it's changed the whole perspective of this thing. And I go, yeah, it's about the glass and yeah. the sensor combo. And then we were off to the races. And, uh, you know, so I started sharing that knowledge. And with sharing that knowledge, people wanted more. And they wanted more video content they just didn't want blog posts that they were reading so i was like all right so then we fired up the video arm of of uh at the time it was hurl but visuals and the hurl blog and then they wanted even more and they wanted more depth and more lighting and all different scenarios so then i was like all right then we became shane's inner circle and became this membership site and i was you know I was like, you know, I want this for everyone, you know, so we'll make it $7.99. Well, that couldn't afford anything, you know, it's like I couldn't even, you know, hire a staff. So I'm like writing all the blogs myself, trying to shoot all the videos myself. It was, just, it was a train wreck. Yeah. So then we're like, all right, now we're going to go Hurlbut Academy. We rebranded three times. And trust me, those three brand, uh, those three rebrands were like having a child. 
I had never experienced such a stressful situation of trying to keep the members on and people like, I don't like change. You're changing from <laughs> Shane's inner circle to Hurlbut Academy. What's this? I'm out of here, you know? So it's like, it was a kind of a difficult uh, ride yeah. and I made so many failures along the way. My God, it was failure here, failure there, failure here, failure there. Uh, but then one day, it was actually at night at 3 a.m. I popped up while I was shooting in New Orleans, a movie. Mm -hmm. And I was like, we're calling this fucker Filmmakers Academy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, I went that night and bought the, you know, the GoDaddy thing because, of course, somebody had already had it. Yeah. And uh, then we had to scarf up all the Instagram handles and Facebook and everything else that came along with it. And then... We hired a PR team and through that, we launched Filmmakers Academy. And now I feel like we've really hit our stride. We have a really great team uh, around us and it is an absolute pleasure to walk in every day and see my creative producer, my creative director, my social media expert, my assistant editor, my main editor, uh, my, you know, equipment manager and, you know, first AC lead tech, you know, all mm -hmm. these people in that office every day. Uh, my wife, who runs the, the Filmmakers Academy, CEO, seeing them every day and just coming in and figuring out the plan to inspire the next generation of filmmakers. That's great. And dude. it's what's so rewarding is what Linny and I just did a, a podcast on this couple uh, that came from Nigeria mm -hmm. and we called the podcast, the ripple effect. So he took everything that I had started in Shane's inner circle, all the video lessons, all that stuff. And then the Hurlbut Academy. And he was able to take all those lessons and courses. He was able to formulate those into kind of a, almost like a film school program over hmm. in Nigeria to elevate and inspire female filmmakers. No kidding. And they are 2,000 strong That's educating female filmmakers. They created the WIFN, which is the Wim Women's International Film Festival Nigeria. Hmm. Last year was their first one. And they, it was so inspiring to talk to them because they took this mentor of me Mm -hmm. And they were able to put it into a curriculum to teach the future female filmmakers of Nigeria. That's awesome. And man. that is what inspires the living shit out of me every day because sharing knowledge is one thing, but when you share knowledge and it has that spark and somebody takes that spark and then makes it their own and sees how they can leverage that education. Mm -hmm. And it's just like you said, there's no mentors anywhere in the world except kind of the United States. There's not many mentors in, in even Europe. Everyone really? Really? has their way that they do stuff and, you know, they don't like to share their knowledge that much and they, they feel like it's competition and that you're going to take their job. Yeah, it's a big it's part kind of it. Very, it's a big part uh, of it. Here. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, very fear based. Yeah. And I just, you know, was always into telling everyone what I did and how I did it because I know that they're not going to be Shane Hurlbut, but showing how I light and how I lens and what I do. I'm only hoping that you're going to take that and like a DJ mixtape, you're going to pull a little of this and pull a little of that and grab from this <laughs> other DP and grab from that other DP and then put it into your little mixologist uh, DJ thing and spin a mixtape. And but, that becomes who you are as a cinematographer. Yeah, man. That's how our business works. That's how our business is yes. supposed to work. I, I, I completely agree with you. Dude, it's like, that's why I started the show, man. Like it's, there isn't a whole lot of folks out there that are being honest and, and talking about how these things actually work. They're not talking about like what the life is actually like to be in this business. It's bipolar. It's incredibly no, bipolar. It is. You know, it's like you come out of film school and I'm like, you know, not one class in film school was about leadership. Right. I'm on Terminator Salvation. I have 295 people in the grip, electric and camera department. Oh, I forgot you did that fucking movie. Oh, wow. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. So I yeah. got... I got 295 people that I need to lead, that I need to manage. You know, it's like there's no skills on any of that. And it's like, yes, it has taken me a long time. And trust me, when I was, you, you described that guy that beat the hell out of their crew and, and uh, didn't necessarily respect him and pushed him to the breaking point. That was me when I first started out. And I was that individual. So hold on. And why, why do you think it, that was? Was that just because you were feeling insecure about having to handle all that yes. stuff? Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I was completely over my head. And that was the thing. It's like, I was constantly like, I called myself half drowning. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because how quickly I came up the ladder, how, how I was put in the position of, of, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think I was really ready if you want to. Right, right, be right. Because you're, you're, you're thrust into that position. And now you've got dudes that are working underneath you that are probably twice your age. That's, that's why I grew a beard. <laughs> I've always had no, a beard. That's why I grew a mustache when I yeah. was a grip. Yeah I, yeah. I was a key grip and I had guys that were 30 years older than I that was my set electric or my set <laughs> grip. <laughs> it's the exact same for me. I once I grew a beard, it's like, well, people at least look at me and go, well, this guy, he might know something. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. the, it's the truth. It's the truth, man. It's the very truth. And, and uh, dude, and, and when you talk about working on Terminator and that level of crew, that's you, you're a fucking ship captain at that point. Like you're dealing no, with. I know because I'm, I got second unit as well. Right. So it's like, I got, I have my main crew, which was, you know, 20 some odd deep and grip and electric and camera. Yeah. Then I have, uh, then I have a whole rigging crew that's, you know, 15 deep, uh, in each department. Then I have a whole second unit team. You know, it's just, it's, it gets monumentous. Yeah, but, well, dude, and, and I, 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 but I've also heard that that movie was incredibly stressful to work on to begin with. There's all sorts of stresses that were surrounding that yes. movie in that set. Yeah. And everything so, you know, it's like you, these, what, what I thought to myself, I'm like, okay, Lydia, when we sat down and kind of put the business plan together of what Filmmakers Academy was going to be, I go, what if we fill the gap, that gap between film school and the set? 
mm-hmm. and also on to the next level in your career once you have you know mastered your first level of of cinematography and then you're moving up to your next level you know you're shooting commercials and music videos then you're going to move up to uh, maybe shooting bigger budget commercials and music videos and then from there maybe you start to do narrative you know it's like those steps is what we those transitions is what the filmmaker academy is all about yeah, because I do like the weirdest thing. Like, there's a lesson uh, that I'm going to be doing very soon that just talks about pickups. Yeah, right. Yeah, because every movie has pickups. You need them. So, how are you prepared to shoot pickups as a cinematographer? Yes, yeah, okay. Right. We have the video reference and all that stuff, but how do you really prepare to shoot pickups? How do you make a match in so you hardly have to do any color correction to make those things, you know, jive f- from four months ago when you actually finish production, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's like, these are the kind of things that that cinematographer that's probably got three or four films under his belt and has all already gone into the pickup mode and maybe made some mistakes and failures in that. This is going to literally fast track them to 30 years of experience of where I am right now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's the kind of, you know, learning where you come out of film school and we get you up to speed. I have a beginner cinematography career path that's 220 hours. Hmm. That's the equivalent of a USC degree and a master's program. Yeah. Just the beginner. Hmm. Right. And then I have 160 hours of advanced. So it's like you start to end. And I thought, you know, when I put these career paths together in the beginning, I was like, okay, this is going to be daunting as hell. Everyone's on YouTube. They want to, they want everything in five or six minutes, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But these, the people that are signing up to Filmmakers Academy are invested in their craft. They're investing in themselves to train themselves, to get them ahead of the competition, to give them a leg up of why, oh, wow, he just he's lighting with all these different units. How did he learn how to do all that? Well, I taught him, right? So it's like, these are the kind of things that we are there to kind of, and, and what I saw was, okay, in the beginning, Filmmakers Academy launched, it was all these little, you know, it was kind of the, the flashy, you know, uh, hot reflective shit on the hillside kind of courses and lessons that they were going for. Then all of a sudden they sat down and I'm talking, they started doing the work. They started doing these massive career paths and it's, they're still my number one and number two on analytics every week of the amount of people that are on these two tracks. And so it's like, I, I understand where, you know, now I can start to see, okay, it's, it's working. Everything that we have kind of designed, everything that Lydia is her vision for the future, you know, she was all about these career paths. And I was like, I was all about putting them together, but she's like, <laughs> man, that's a lot. Those, those are really long, Shane, you know, and I go, I know, but if you look at the analytics, they 
are watching the content. Yeah. And they're yeah. finding mistakes. You know, they'll find like, hey, you know, your audio fell out on uh, 147 to <laughs> 205. Sure, sure, That's sure. when you know they're invested, right? Sure, you know? sure, sure. I, I think... <laughs> I think when there was finding the little hiccups. Yeah, man. I think there was like a, you know, I think at one period in time, people were concerned about runtime, but I think that just became overblown. Like people listen to this show. I go like two and a half hours sometimes in this show and people listen beginning to end. Like it's, yeah, there are folks out there that want to learn. There are folks out there that want to feel comforted and I, what you're providing to them. And it makes sense, Shane, as we, cause I got to wrap this up as, as we sort of get yeah. to the end of this. Um, you're running full circle here, man, because you wouldn't have your career if you weren't brought in and mentored by the cinematographers that mentored you and gave you the opportunity to make your music video that exactly. then, that, that made it all work. So it, it does make sense. And I think without dragging this out, I think that that mindset is very fucking toxic. The one of like, uh, if I give you my secrets, then I'm, I'm not going to have a job. If the only reason you're getting hired is because you've got some tricks that you dial into your camera, then your your job's going to be gone in a couple of years anyways, man, because they're not even going to use fucking that camera anymore. And, right. And as we're progressing into a whole new world with film and a whole new world with AI tech and all new shit that's coming out, man, yeah. the, the thing that you can't replace is time and experience that's garnered through time. And it seems like that that's what your course is giving folks is your time is the time yeah. that you've spent and learned and how to build these things. And yeah, it's like I wanted to teach people how I learned because I felt to be the best cinematographer in the world, you really need to know all sides. You need yeah. to know the grip side, the electric side. You need to know the camera side. You need to know how to work with the production designer, speak the same language, uh, understand the uh, subtlety of like hair and makeup tweaks here and there. You need to really understand it. So I wanted to start at the bottom and just work my way up and it's given me such a it's mike it's so rewarding because by teaching you get to go back and yep. do things all over again yep and when i came up the ladder i if you call it the alphabet i went a d f l <laughs> you know r mm -hmm. t z right uh you know that's how i jumped up and now I'm going back because I have to teach and really give everyone. I go A, B, right. C. So you're relearning. D, and you're then relearning as you all go of a sudden, B and C that I jumped over, my, I, I stumbled onto something. Well, that's something I'm going to put in my memory yep. bank. I'm going to use yep. that again, you know? And yep. it's like I've come up with so many cool new concepts by teaching exactly what, um, you know, I you know, like what teaching night interiors, let's say, and I'm doing something like that. And all of a sudden I stumble onto something where I'm like, okay, I'm going to use that. Yeah. But that's what, what I uh, love about this industry just as a whole, because, you know, you never stop learning. There's always, it's, it's like, you know how you have like your favorite professor uh, when you were growing up, whether it was high school, whether it was grade school, whether it was college, mm -hmm. you have that, Every time you make a movie, mm -hmm. you have that great professor. 
and you you have the the person that's going to take you along and you're on the journey with them and you're making a movie with him or her and mm-hmm. you know it's like sometimes uh you know the ship is wrecked with havoc and and despair and and you got to and it's much more difficult than it needs to be but hell you get through it and you you know you're <laughs> you took the hill and you're very proud of it and then there's some days where it's just effortless i think that was my best compliment i think i ever got when i finished the movie safety uh the one disney exec walked up to me and he goes watching you and reggie work is effortless yeah it's wonderful that's a great compliment and i was like well that's a good compliment that's a great compliment <laughs> dude that's a great compliment because of the level of of energy and and uh experience and time and and focus that it takes to get to that unspoken thing. And then the trust that you build with the people that you work with. I mean, that's the dream boat, man. I've been there a few times yeah. myself where you're standing on set and you look around and you go, take a moment, dude. I'm always telling myself that. Like, look around, take a moment and register you're this. You're absolutely right, Mike. You need to take a moment, take that in. And just like, I, I, I just try to create that wave of gratitude. You know, I, I talk about this wave of gratitude where I build up before I go on set. I always meditate and either it's an abundance meditation or a gratitude meditation. And I talk about how my wave of gratitude already <laughs> moves ahead of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I'm coming up to people and they're asking me how I'm doing, I have only two words freaking fantastic <laughs> every single day they get the same exact thing out of me and they're like this is a joke i go no it's not dude i love what i do i love the fact that you're here with me supporting me and helping me in this process and god damn it's great to be alive and be a filmmaker so let's do this shit <laughs> well dude shane i think that's a good place to end it <laughs> Uh, well, look, man, uh, it's been a pleasure, dude. It's, it really uh, has. It's been a pleasure talking to you too, Mike. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Yeah, man. And I, I feel like we could go even longer, but I got to I gotta wrap this up. I got a whole other one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, Shane, thanks for being on the show, my man. Absolutely. Thank you and uh, have a wonderful rest of your day. it is in the can what do you think shane's a cool guy right he's a he's a nice guy he's a nice guy and uh i i genuinely think he likes to teach i i i understand and i sympathize and i empathize with his reason for wanting to teach and when he started to describe how he learned techniques and how he was like finding new things when he went back and teach i is exactly what how i feel when i talk to you listening as we sort of go through things, or if I sit down with a guest and we sort of process things, I really, really, really appreciate it. Um, and uh, like I said, check out his stuff. If you feel the need to get trained, you might want to go check out his Filmmakers Academy. It's it's pretty intense, man. It's a, it's a good place to go to learn some stuff. And honestly, if you're thinking about going to film school, try, try a course like that first. Just try a course because here's my big ish: these giant, giant, giant corporations that are film, that are schools, that are colleges, that put people into fucking debt, 
the uh, the battling that they did so that the the uh, president wouldn't kibosh your student loans, right? The fucking fighting that these companies do. And yeah, I know they're schools, but they're companies, man. I've I've been in the board meetings of these of these places like Harvard, you know, in their fucking three trillion dollar endowment, and the fact that they're budgeting forty years out in advance, and these schools that own like real estate and they're all tax free, so they end up being your fucking landlord, right? And they don't pay taxes on any of that stuff, especially if you live in Boston. I mean, they own they own the entire city of Boston at this point. So just think about it. Before you decide that you're going to drop coin on this, just know that you don't need a diploma to get in this business. I've never been asked for one, ever. You don't need one. Um, and so if you're going to learn, there are some places like Filmmakers Academy that do exist where you can learn a lot of the tech stuff. But... And here's the other thing. I think the only real reason that you would want to go to a film school, right, is if you live out in the middle of nowhere. And there's a lot of you that do. That do. I get questions all the time, weekly. Like, I, I don't live in a film community. What would you suggest I do? Well, there's a couple things, right? If you don't have a bunch of friends that are local that are making films, if you don't have people that are interested in making films together, you might want to relocate somewhere. Where there are those folks. Like I said, I moved from the Cape and there were people on the Cape that wanted to learn how to make movies and a lot of them came up with me. And I moved from the Cape to Boston because it had a bigger film community. I went to school in New York because it had a bigger film community. Right, I ended up coming back to Boston and doing that. Why? Because it's cheaper to shoot in Boston. There are more resources. And I've said this multiple times on the show, man. Like, if you're someone that already has your group of friends that are making movies, you already have everybody that you need on your crew, then don't move. Make a bunch of stuff. Take full advantage of everything that you've got at your disposal. Make all sorts of shit. Because... Once you make something that is worthy, once you make something that's really good, they'll come find you, right? The guys that just shot, what's the name of the horror movie with a hand right now? I can't remember the name of it, um, but they're two YouTubers, dude. You know what I mean? So you can make stuff on your own. And once it gets good enough, once it gets good enough, Hollywood's got their people out there and they're looking all the time. They're hunted through Instagram. They're hunted through YouTube. They're looking at Vimeo staff picks. They're looking at different threads and forums and articles that are written about things. They'll find you. And then you got to ask yourself, am I ready? Am I prepared? Do I know how to handle an agent? Do I know how to handle managers? Do I know how to handle that stuff? I try to teach you guys as much as I know on the show, but what the fuck do I know? And the, the, here's the thing. There is no set path. We've talked about this over and over and over again. It's fucking frustrating. <laughs> if there was a set path, each and every one of you that wants me to do 12 cam as a feature tomorrow, I'd already have it shot. And one would assume, by just looking at me, I should have the path just paved for me. But it doesn't exist like that. Really? Really, the thing that we can't control is it's about who you know. It just is. It's about where you are, right place, right time. And it's about, like Shane described in his story, it's about being able to recognize that moment and take a risk and go with it. And his went well. Some people's don't. 
Sometimes it takes a while to find that moment and you'll get multiple moments. I feel that. I've had multiple moments with my career and I'm still trying to get over that fucking hump. It's tough. It really is. So just take all that into consideration before you decide that you're going to go commit to a four-year film school. And Shane talked about Emerson and uh, he enjoyed his experience there. I've had other guests on the show that have been to Emerson that have uh, the more the powerful element of Emerson, I think, was that it would place you. You'd get placed for internships. Zach Merck, go back and listen to the Zach Merck episode of this. He was placed out of Emerson into the Ridley Scott's offices, into Scott Free, and then worked under Tony Scott. So that placement was worth it, right? Because that started his career, but stuff's a little bit different now, you know? And so hearing Shane's story, he decided to go with that producer out of the rental house. And then he got placed and he got around those guys. And that's how that works. It's, it's just the way the game works here. Right? Who knows who? Find out a way to make it work for you. That's it. I'm rambling. Um, look, I appreciate everybody being here. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for supporting the show. Do us a favor, please. Make sure you're clicking on all the sponsor links in the description of the episode. And just suggest us. Here's your homework this week suggest us to five people and you don't have to just pitch us out of the blue just next time you're like in line for oppenheimer or if you're waiting for barbie or if you're just trying to look for something to watch on a streaming service mention our show mention the fact that this (laughs) this guy likes to rant about all that it'll help us all right that's it i appreciate you As always, I'll see you next Tuesday.